Turn your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. The year was 1692. The place was Salem, Massachusetts. In the very cold winter that year, six-year-old Betty Paris became strangely ill. She ran around and dove under furniture. She twisted up in pain and complained of a high fever. The causes of her symptoms, as people have looked at it in our day, may have been from a number of known diseases. But the problem that the other girls had, uh, those diseases are not contagious, so that could not be explained. Talk of witchcraft increased when her other playmates, including 11-year-old Ann Putnam, 17-year-old Mercy Lewis, and Mary Walcott, began to exhibit similar strange behavior. The doctor was called in, William Griggs, and he tried several of his potions to cure these girls and was unable to do it. And so when his potions failed, he suggested that the girls' problems might have a supernatural origin. The widespread belief that witches would target children made his diagnosis very easy to believe in 1692 in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The slave Tituba, who was from South America, she was an Indian, who had been captured and taken to Barbados as a slave and then brought from Barbados to Boston. She lived in the first girl's house, Betty Paris. And under great duress, uh, you think uh, our torture is bad today, she admitted to witchcraft. And part of the problem, too, was she had told the girls stories of omens and voodoo uh, and witchcraft that had taken place in what she'd seen in both Barbados and in South America. So the witch hunt began with Tatubo, but she confessed, even though under duress, to being a witch. What she did that did the most damage was to name two other women uh, in town as co-witches with her. The ones that uh, admitted it were just put in jail. And after the hysteria passed, about 13 months later, they were all let go. But the ones who denied it were hanged. Over 19 were hanged. One was, was crushed under weight. As the process went on, people not liked in town all of a sudden became, up, fell under the charge of being a witch. And even one of the rival families of the Putnams, a godly woman named Rebecca Nurse was accused of being a witch. And all of these, even their last words, denied witchcraft. Even the former pastor was brought back from another city in Boston and put to death. Their final words uh, all revealed that that was not the case in, for most of them. It wasn't until the governor changed what could be accepted as evidence Uh, that the trials finally ceased and the hysteria passed. The whole mess finally ended in just a little over a year. But during this time, a false accusation against one who would not confess usually ended their lives. False accusations. When trials and difficulties hit us as believers in life, we're tempted to not believe what the Bible declares is the character of God. Skeptics quickly deny his sovereignty or his holiness and goodness, and they'll demand that we sacrifice one or the other. Which is it? Is God good or is he sovereign? 
They argue that he can't possibly be both in the world in which we live. Agnostics deny his existence altogether. American Christians often deny his sovereignty or get angry at God for not intervening when they decide he needed to step in and change things. So we too then are tempted to not believe what the Bible teaches about God's character and then to test God with our false accusations. Just last Sunday we saw from 1 Timothy that he is the only potentate. He is the sovereign one. But our depravity leads us to ignore that grand truth found in our Bibles. Today we will see in our text Malachi confronting the people of Judah for testing God's patience by making false accusations against him. Let's stand together as we read Malachi 2.17 together as God's people. The Bible says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? Father, as we look at your truth, may we see that these accusations indeed are false, that you're a God of holiness, of justice, of righteousness. And may we praise your name forever, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're jumping back into a study of Malachi where we've already looked at five of the first six debates. The first one was about denying God's love. The second was about honoring and glorifying God. The third was about defilement of God's name and his worship regulations. The fourth was about covenant unfaithfulness. The last one we looked at was about unanswered prayer. And today we're looking at about testing God's patience with false accusations. This kind of flows into the next one about divine justice. And then we'll look at in the future, Lord willing, about repentance, about worship, giving and robbery, about arrogant and unsubmissive charges against God, and about serving God. God's people should not test his patience by making false accusations against him. So in this text, we'll see three false accusations that foolishly test God's patience and his forbearance. The first one is, he does not display holiness. Second, he does not practice righteousness. And third, he does not challenge injustice. So to begin with, the first false accusation that foolishly tests God's patience and his forbearance is he does not display holiness. Again, look at verse 17. When you say everyone does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight. Malachi begins by saying, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Wearied is to be tested to the point of requiring a response. And here, it's what's called an anthropomorphism. Uh, This is a truth that you have to use human terms for us to understand that God's patience has come to an end. But this does not mean that God gets tired or has human emotions. He does not. God has divinely perfect emotions. And the Bible records that there are limits to his forbearance. His patience is balanced with his holiness and his justice, and it has a time limit on it. So what does this phrase mean? 
you have wearied the Lord. It means there a, comes a time when enough is enough and judgment will be rendered. In other words, y'all have gone too far. This debate follows the normal pattern of the other ones that we've looked at in this book. First, there's a statement by God and then a challenge by the people, usually beginning with the word how or in what way. Then we see God's verbal response. Here, the statement is, you're making false accusations. You're, you're pushing God's patience to the utmost end. They say, how are we doing that? And then God lists through Malachi the three false accusations the people are making against God. When he comes to the third accusation, the response to this one is part of the next debate about divine justice. And that's where Malachi prophesies the coming of the Messiah, Yeshua, who will answer many of the debates, including proof of God's love for his people, the very first debate, and proof of God's justice, the one that we're looking at uh, a little bit today and more in the future. So love and justice actually met on a cross just north of Damascus Gate in Jerusalem, where a bus station now sits with a big rock called Gagatha sitting up behind it. Love and justice met there 2,000 years ago. So what we have here is, is the statement. You've been testing God with your complaints and unbelief, and you have used God's patience up in this matter. The future truths the skeptics weren't concerned about, that God is going to show up in person in Jerusalem. They were worried about the then and now. So God makes a statement, you've been testing me with your complaints and unbelief, and this implies that the unbelief, the false accusations, the complaints, and even the whining, if they're not replaced with repentance, they will result in chastisement by God. They need to repent and forsake this mindset and forsake these false charges. So now it's the people's turn. God makes this statement. It's the people's turn to respond. And they respond like they do often in this book. How have we wearied you? How have we wearied him? Note here that you don't see repentance. You don't see confession. But you see angry, rebellious depravity and even a denial even after they've been caught. Confession is without excuse, without qualification, or without blame to be a biblical confession. I own fully what I did wrong, but not these guys. How? In what way? Prove, God, that we have been testing you. So Malachi reminds them of this first accusation that they've made against God. They've done this, Malachi says, by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh. Examine this arrogant, this self-righteous, this independent spirit that's here. Do I, as a mere human, get to determine what is true and right in the world and assume that the whole universe revolves around just me? Am I the source of truth and the one who gets to set the standards? Does God not measure up to my standards, so I charge God by my standards? Paul, in the book of Romans, gives us a response to attitudes like this. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? He is the potter, you are the clay. 
the little paper airplane can't answer back to the boy and say, you made my tail fin too long. That's not how it works. The boy is the one who's made in the image of God, not the paper airplane. And God is the only independent being. You will never be the sovereign one of the universe. So if God labels all evildoers as good, as the people are falsely accusing, he's not displaying his holiness. This is utterly impossible. This is an arrogant, blasphemous lie. This is a false accusation. The evil queen Jezebel wanted to acquire Naboth's vineyard and his family property to give to her husband Ahab, another wicked ruler. Naboth would not sell his family land, so Jezebel hired several men of pretty low character to lie and accuse Naboth of a capital crime. And he was put to death based on the false accusations of three perjurers. Making false accusations are no small thing. Anna uh, Ayala purchased a severed finger from a friend and in 2005 stuck it in a Wendy's chili, falsely accusing this chain of serving it to her. As the police investigated it, they found and spoiled her plot, and she was caught and spent four years in jail. But Wendy's may have lost as much as $21 million based on one false accusation. Malachi 3.13 shows us that this attitude is serious enough to be addressed twice in this short book. Only four chapters, 11 debates, and responding back to God, accusing God, uh, talking bad about God, comes up twice in the 11. Verse 13 of chapter 3, God says, Your words have been against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. So this argument shows up twice in the 11. The truth is found throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But one key place is Deuteronomy 32. For I will proclaim Yahweh's name, declare the greatness of our God, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are entirely just. A faithful God without prejudice. He is righteous and true. Isaiah 6 tells us that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. When we are confronted with sin, like the Jews in Judah, do we use debate or denial or diversion tactics to cover up our sin rather than confess or forsake it? When our sin is exposed by any means, the proper response is grief and sorrow of how we've rebelled against God, our Creator, and our Redeemer. Repentance 
turning 180 degrees from the sin with all of us, our mind, will, and emotion. Confession and forsaking sin is the proper response. Sin is any violation of God's law or refusing to do all that God requires us in his word. And all sin is against God. It is his universe and his righteous standard that you're violating when you level false accusations against his person or his word. We can't say to God, don't take it personal. He does take it personal because this is his universe. And yes, saying there are errors in the Bible is the same type of attack on God as making false accusations against his person. The second false accusation that foolishly tests God's patience and forbearance is he does not practice righteousness. Or in other words, God loves the wicked and their deeds. Look at verse 17 again. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. So this is the second accusation that they have made. First, they say everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and then they say he is pleased with them. He delights in them. So the charge is that God delights in those who do evil. Now, racism is involved in this accusation. They ignore that God sent the Jews into exile for their injustice and for violating the covenant. They just came back from exile. They are the remnant that survived. So their complaints is is that the Gentiles raised up to bring judgment on the wicked Jews seem to not be bearing any consequences for the sinful way they went about it. So the problem is not that God always delays in punishing sin, but that he is delaying in punishing the sin of their enemies. So notice again the arrogance, the self-righteousness, and the ethnocentrism. The universe revolves around us and no one else. God, if you don't judge our enemies right away, then that means you're approving of evil. God's forbearance, though, allows for repentance. But like Jonah, they didn't want the pagans to repent and be spared God's wrath. It's us four, no more, close the door. That's their attitude. This accusation, again, is unbiblical and impossible. God can only practice righteousness. The Apostle John says in 1 John that there is not one drop of darkness, error, or sin in God, but that he is light, which means he is holiness and truth. The people say God delights in and loves the wicked and their deeds. He doesn't practice righteousness. This, again, is an arrogant, blasphemous lie, a false accusation. Procter & Gamble was falsely accused of supporting Satanism and occult groups. And the Internet and emails helped spread the false accusations. After a 12-year lawsuit, four rival companies had to pay Procter & Gamble $19 million for the slander and libel. But the damage was much greater than that. Snoops.com is one of the websites that examines urban legends, but they pop up before they can even be examined. But lies against local leaders are not always corrected in court or on the Internet. Even the McDonald's Corporation had to fight Greenpeace in court in the United Kingdom for 20 years over six false accusations, even after they won the court battle in 1997. It continued until 2005 that Greenpeace continued to make these accusations against them. It seems that sinners who won't repent are experts at blaming others 
and making false accusations. Habakkuk asked a similar question in faith to what we looked at earlier with Asaph uh, and deals with the same struggle the people in Judah are struggling with. But his approach is different. Habakkuk has faith seeking understanding, and he starts with the very truth of the character of God. He says in chapter 1, verse 13, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Then why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Speaking about the Babylonians who are coming to get Judah. Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And Habakkuk learns in his dialogue with God that the ones uh, they are punishing, the Jews in Judah, have committed sins of open, intelligent rebellion. They violated the covenant they have sworn to be faithful to. And God will also punish the Gentiles for their overtop methods of cruelty and arrogance. But to whom much is given, much is required. They were responsible more because they had more light and truth. Do people who love God and trust him and his word struggle when certain events occur? Yes. But they humbly admit that they do not know what is best for the whole universe, nor are they owed an answer as a clay pot to the potter. They lay their concerns before God in prayer and trust him to work good out of the situation, just as the word of God promises us he will. As we looked at Psalm 73 earlier, this was Asaph's exact same struggle. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slips, my steps went astray. For I envied the arrogant, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others, they are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers their garments. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. Their imagination of their heart runs wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They south their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them. They are always at ease and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocent for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. And in that day, that's where the word of God was. We didn't have printing presses. He got to where the word of God was as a a Levite who assisted with the music. Then I understood the destiny of the wicked. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors, like one waking from a dream. Lord, when rising, you will despise their image. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was unthinking animal towards you. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me up in glory. Who do I in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. And so this is the approach in taking biblical truth and looking at the events and allowing that truth to change our hearts. What is your attitude towards God? Do you submit to his sovereignty? 
Or are you raising that clenched fist of depravity and saying, God, you're late. I wanted this done five minutes ago, and it's not done now. It's my watch that matters. It's my clock that counts. You say, I will not submit to your rule, or I will not worship you. Do you respond to God's words with unbelief, with rebellion, with even false accusations like the folks in Judah? Are you careful not to spread gossip about people made in God's image? Because that, too, those false accusations eventually get back to God as well. Do you make false accusations against God or his people? Do you attack all that God has placed in authority? God realizes that you're striking at him when you do that. The third false accusation that foolishly tests God's patience and forbearance is he does not challenge injustice. In other words, God leaves the unjust unpunished. Again, look at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied him when you say, everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and he is pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? Malachi lists this third false accusation by saying, where is the God of justice? These people did not belong to God, and so they didn't understand the gospel of grace. They seem to be ignorant of the rotten depravity of their own hearts and their own self-righteousness that it was in itself a wicked sin. Isaiah says, on your very best day, your very best deed is a filthy medical rag used to wipe up body fluids. That's your best day, not your worst. If God does not come on my timetable and deal with my enemies, he can't be just. God is working out a plan of redemption. He has both Joseph and Mary's ancestors now back in the land. They were in Babylon. Now they're back in the land of Israel. And his prophets are calling the people to covenant faithless so they can stay in the land. Keeping them in the land those next 400 years is going to take a lot of work. Then the Messiah can be born. He can live a holy life in our place. He can die in our place. He can be raised from the dead and ascend to the right hand of God the Father, having completed the work he was sent to do. God would have been just if he would have judged Israel even right after these accusations like he did Sodom and Gomorrah because they deserved it. But the wonderful justice of God and his amazing love for sinners meet together six hours one Friday. Because Jesus paid for my sin, I can justly be acquitted. God doesn't just let me off the hook. He takes all my unrighteousness and places it on his son, and he allows his wrath to fall on him in my place. He redeemed me in justice with a just redemption. My sin has been paid for in full. So God's plan of salvation has both amazing love and amazing grace. Where is the God of justice? He's ruling in heaven, and in 4 B.C., he's going to show up in person in Bethlehem, and that's the very next thing Malachi tells him in chapter 3. The messenger of the covenant is coming, Yeshua, the Messiah. Only someone who is blind to their own sin calls on God to show up and judge sinners. Lord, kill all sinners. Guess what? I'm in trouble if he answers that prayer. Friend, judgment begins at the house of God. 
Those who are in a covenant relationship get chastised first before the world gets judged. Just because God does not follow my timetable does not mean the wicked, evil, or unjust sinners go unpunished. They do not. Some sins do have immediate consequences, and others result in many types of punishment on earth, some from men, some natural. But even after the earthly punishment, all sins are either paid for at the cross of the Messiah or in the lake of fire forever and ever. These complainers and false accusers learn the hard way that God is completely just and will punish each and every sin, those inside Judah and those outside. So don't call on God to get everybody who's a sinner except me. It doesn't work that way. Their unbelief and their rebellion displayed that they were not trusting in the Messiah of the prophecy to come, who for us is the Messiah of history who has already came. Our rebellious world is full of injustice. Some think that the families of the murdered man and women, woman in the O.J. Simpson trial were robbed of justice. Some think that little Kaylee Anthony was robbed of justice for her death by a Florida jury. But no earthly jury could render justice to the inner Nazi circle who planned the mass murder that took the lives of over 6 million Jews. The Hitlers, the Stalins, the Idi Amins of this world could never receive adequate justice for the crimes they've committed against humanity by a human jury. But the great white throne judgment, that place, justice will be rendered for all of those, Hitler, Stalin, Idi Amin, and many others. Heaven is now the only place of true justice. But praise God, it is also a place where the redeemed guilty go because justice was rendered to Jesus in their place. In Romans chapter 2, Paul deals with this argument in talking to the Jews. Romans 1, he's shown the Gentiles that they're all sinners. In chapter 2, he shows the Jews that they're all sinners. And he says, Therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same thing. You say all liars should be put to death, but I never lie. You're in big trouble. You're next one to die. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on truth. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the richest of his kindness? His restraint and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will repay each one according to his works. And he sees everything. He knows every thought, every word. He does it totally, justly, and perfectly. Eternal life to those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth, but are obeying unrighteousness. Affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. There is no favoritism with God. And that was part of the issue in Malachi's day. They wanted the Babylonians and the Assyrians, they wanted them to get immediate judgment by God, even the coming Greeks. But they wanted their uh, 
pardon to be continued over and over and over. Romans 9.14, Paul, in one verse, answers the false charge in this chapter. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. Don't even think it. The Bible is clear. God is always just. He himself defines justice. To be unjust is to be unlike God and under his wrath, not under his delight, as the people were falsely accusing him. Don't ask God to send justice to every sinner on your street, because that's going to include you too. You should be fleeing the wrath to come and begging for mercy, not demanding justice. What if you're the one that's being falsely accused? Go to God in prayer. He fully understands exactly what's going on inside of you in response to this trial. In his time, he will make it right. Every secret thing will one day be revealed. Every careless word will one day be reviewed. The Jews in Malachi's day were repeating false charges against God the Father. In Romans 15, 3, Paul writes, For even the Messiah did not please himself. On the contrary, as it is written, The insults of those who insulted you have fallen on me. The ones who insulted God the Father were also insulting God the Son. When he came to earth, he too received false accusations. There were false witnesses at Jesus' trials. He said he could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. There were two illegal midnight Jewish trials that produced false witnesses before being falsely accused of attempting to overthrow the Roman government and three Gentile trials. God the Son, Jesus Christ, was also falsely accused. The ninth commandment is very important. People innocent of charges can be put to death based on false accusations and intentional lies. That's why the civil law of Israel required three witnesses so that one angry liar was not enough to cost you your life. The people are wrong. God is holy. God is righteous and God is just. We need to believe and say the truth about God. We need to say the truth about those made in his image including those who have delegated authority from God. So God's people should not test his patience by making false accusations against him. In this text, we saw three false accusations that falsely and foolishly test God's patience and forbearance. The people said he does not display holiness. They were wrong. He does not practice righteousness. That's all he can practice. He does not challenge injustice. Yes, he does, but on his timetable. Trust in the sovereign God who rules in holiness, in righteousness, in justice, grace, mercy, and love. Don't blame God for the results of sin and rebellion, and don't test God by your fallen moral standards. You can't trust your reason, your heart. It's fallen. Love him. Trust him. Surrender him and believe what his word says are his attributes. They are true. The Bible is right. It is the trusted source of truth, not your feelings or your reasoning of your fallen, rebellious heart or of other sinful people. Don't test God in this way. God has much more clearly revealed to you what he's like than he did to the return remnant in Jerusalem at 400 B.C. They didn't know that the Messiah's name would be Jesus. They didn't know all that is recorded for us in the New Testament. Get right with God by surrendering your arrogant way of salvation for the only way he will accept, 
No one comes unto the Father except through me, said Jesus, the Messiah. Deal with the issues of your inner person, the heart. God desires your heart, not mere outward conformity to a set of rules. That was another struggle that people had in, in their second complaint. They said, oh, it's such a burden to do all these things. They weren't serving God out of love. They didn't love him. They were serving to earn salvation, which you cannot do. Only Jesus can merit salvation for you. You need to surrender to him, repent of your sins, put your faith and trust in him, and forever be his child. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, the righteous one, the one who died for sinners. And we ask that as we go into this time of invitation that you'll work in our hearts, help us to surrender afresh to you, to say truth about you based on your word, that you are righteous, that you are holy, that you are just all the time. Help us to walk by faith, to hold on to your word, your spirit, your truth, your people. When we go through dark valleys and events we can't understand, we pray now in this time of invitation that you'll work in our hearts. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.